It's time for Supply Chain Now. Broadcasting live from the supply chain capital of the country, Atlanta, Georgia. Heard around the world, Supply Chain Now spotlights the best in all things supply chain. The people, the technologies, the best practices, and the critical issues of the day. And now, here are your hosts. Hey, good afternoon. Scott Luton here with you on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. Today's episode, we're continuing our Logistics with Purpose series powered by our dear friends over at Vector Global Logistics. On this series, we're, we're spotlighting leaders and organizations that really are changing the world in, in some way, shape, or form. And we work really hard to not only increase your supply chain IQ, but increase your leadership IQ. So stick to, stay tuned for a lot more here today. Quick programming note before we get started. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. All right, so we've got a full a slew of guests here today. Let's welcome in, first off, our fearless co-host here from the incredible Vector Global Logistics team. We have Matilda Aron. Matilda, how you doing? I'm good. <laughs> great to see you. I've, I've really enjoyed rubbing elbows through a variety of different initiatives, and it's great to have, finally get you on the podcast. So welcome in, Matilda. Of course, Adrian Pertil. Good afternoon, Adrian. Hi, Scott. Uh, good to be here again and looking forward to another wonderful show. Agreed, agreed. Man, that is a gorgeous scene you've got just back behind you. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, and finally, we've got the one and only Enrique Alvarez. Enrique, good afternoon. Hey, Scott. Good afternoon. Great to be here with you, as always, and uh, really excited about this particular episode. I it's going to be great. Completely agree. And none of y'all let the cat out of the bag with our future I almost guest. Did. <laughs> almost did. <laughs> well, let's welcome, with, with no further ado, and really excited about this episode, uh, along with what you just shared there, Enrique, we're going to welcome in Steve Sterling, President and CEO of MAP International, who has been serving millions of people around the world, folks in need, since 1954. Wow. Steve, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Scott. Glad to be on your show. We are so excited to have you. As we talked about kind of pre-show, your reputation and, and what you and the MAP organization has been doing precedes you. And we're really excited to dive in deeper and share that with our audience. I am too. And I want to thank you, Scott and Enrique and Adrian and Matilda for having me uh, on your show. It's just great to be part of this great team here. This is your story and what you're doing is really the genesis of the Logistics with Purpose series. And, and it's one of our favorite series here at Supply Chain Now. So, Let's dive right in, and 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 before we get to work, um, let's get to know you better, Steve. Uh, you know, you've got a you've had a fascinating journey. We want to share some of that with our audience. So tell us tell us where you're from, and and paint that picture. Give us a few anecdotes about your journey. My story is about with God, all things are possible. I was born in South Korea, and uh, when I was one year old, I ended up getting polio, and my father, uh, my biological father, went to a funeral. Uh, of his friends uh, uh, whose child had passed away, and unbeknownst to him, the child had passed away from polio. So this would have been 1957, and the polio vaccine had not reached Korea yet. I ended up getting polio. That was devastating to my father because I was the eldest son, and he felt so guilty about bringing the virus home to me. And so it was just a, a tragic time. It, it seemed like it at the time. And so when I was five years old, they tried to do all they could to get me to walk and there's no um, health care back then. And so my father heard about a Christian orphanage called Holt. My aunt told him maybe if he was able to go into Holt, maybe I could get some medical care and some other things in life. So I remember the night before my father 
dropped me off. He really distraught and I remember he got a little drunk because that must have been so painful for him. And so next morning he got up and he took me to the orphanage and he uh, left me at the doorstep and he told me to cry and somebody will come get you. And so I, I obeyed him, I sure I cried and sure enough, somebody got me. But then uh, by the next day, I crawled back where he dropped me off because I thought he was gonna come get me. Mm. I did that every day for over a week and then the second week, uh, my relatives brought my sister. Um, I have a biological sister that was adopted with me. And so they dropped her off. And so at least we were together. She's not disabled. And so she, we could spend the time together. But I remember in growing up in the orphanage, it was very, uh, you know, I was scared because I, I thought I'd do something bad. You know, hey, dad, you know, what, what did I do wrong that you just abandoned me like this? And then I just remember I used to cry out to God. I said, God, first I was angry at God. I said, well, you know, what did I do? to be abandoned and left behind and first get polio and then do all these things. And then I, that turned to God help me. And it says in Psalm 72, 4, 12 and 14, that if you cry out, the homeless, the orphans, the widows, when they cry out to God, God will listen as their blood is precious to him. And he did listen. And so I was very fortunate that while I was in the orphanage, that a sponsor sponsored me. And so I would get some leg braces and crutches so I can walk. First was leg braces. And then I remember, you know, going to school, I was the only handicapped kid going to the regular school and kids would pick on me every single day, like clockwork, both physically and verbally. But I still wanted to go to school. I don't know what drove me, but I wanted to go to school. But then what would happen is when I get back to where the handicapped kids were staying, that's me included, I would line them all up and I would literally uh, take it out on them. So in frustration. So I was, I was a really bad kid because I was just literally um, you know, beat up the handicapped kids when I got home. Well, Steve, real quick, let me ask you a question. Two, two quick things. First off, seems like your faith was something you could really lean on heavily during these really challenging childhood, right? I didn't know who Jesus was. I, nobody told me about Jesus. I just knew I could talk to somebody. And, you know, I didn't have any adults to talk with. So I would just start talking to God. And I didn't know who God was. I would just start talking to him. And that's, I was not a spiritual person any other than I just need to talk to somebody. And so I cried out to God for help. And, and then secondly, where in during these formative years as you're going to school and, and having these experiences you're just sharing here, what city was that? Where was that? It was a place called Ilsan, Korea. So I was born in Seoul, Korea. Then the uh, orphanage is uh, it's, uh, in Ilsan. It's about 20 miles northwest of Seoul. And so uh, you can go there, and that's a big city. But back then, it was a tiny little village. And did you spend, did you stay in Ilsan throughout your, um, your early schooling? I did. So, so I was in the orphanage for five years. And, and this is amazing how God works. My parents, uh, Lynn and Jim Sterling, they went to Korea to pick up another brother and sisters not related to me by blood. And so they were passing out candy to the kids that were left behind. My sister, Mary Ellen, she took the candy and she ran off. So the, my parents asked the orphanage worker, what, doesn't she like us? Why does she run off that way? And the orphanage workers told my parents, she has a handicapped brother and she's taking him candy first. Wow. So I, I had her trained really well, right? She was my legs. But they were so touched by that. They said, well, we need to meet her brother. So they went way in the back of the orphanage and I was sitting on the floor with other handicapped kids. And they said, oh, uh, they said, we need to adopt him too. Had she not done what she did, sharing candy with me first, my parents would have not even known about us, about me certainly, and they would not have adopted us because they had a, a law back then, immigration law, where 
you can only bring over two children from an um, international country. So uh, they had to work two years to amend the bill uh, as a rider. So when President Johnson signed the bill in 1966, August, then we could come over. So my sister had a big play part you know, in coming over because had she not done that, we would be back in still in Korea. So I'm thankful she's, she was very uh, thoughtful and, and thought about somebody else beside herself when she had to share the candy with me first. Wow. So, so you early on had developed an appreciation for supply chain, right? The candy yes. supplier here. Exactly. And, but secondly, kidding aside, if I'm understanding you correctly, and I may not, but part of them developing, making that connection, your parents, your adoptive parents, that led to legislation that allowed for a lot more handicapped children to be adopted. Is that right? It, it was basically my parents worked with the congressman in Alaska because they had, they had moved from California to Anchorage, Alaska. And so they were writing the congressman in Alaska. It's on my book, by the way. And so the congressman basically attached to a bill. It's a rider. And so when the bill passed, then we could come over and basically said that, uh, that Myung Su, my Korean name is Myung Su, my sister's name is Myung Yee, could come over so they could be, uh, become children for Lynn and Jim Sterling. So while it was the beginning of the immigration, uh, this was back in the 60s when there was no really immigration and adoption going on. So they, were, they played a part of that uh, process as well. Outstanding. We're going to talk about, you, you referenced your book, The Crutch of Success. We're going to talk about that more here as we get further into the, uh, the interview. So, so tell us more as, as we continue kind of working our way into your professional journey. Before we get there, tell us more about your upbringing and, and some of these challenges you fought through. You know, it was so amazing. When you are living in a small orphanage in Ilsan, Korea, and all of a sudden you land in an airport in Anchorage, Alaska, it's majestic. You got the mountains on the other side, you got the ocean on one side, and it, it is this beautiful place. And by the way, in, in Korea, the uh, Korean word for America is Miguk, which means beautiful land. And it was certainly a beautiful land. So when we, uh, so it was the first time that I had a family uh, after I was in the orphanage for five years. And so my parents adopted, uh, by then, uh, we were the sixth, fifth and sixth. And then also God blessed them one of their own. Uh, God has a sense of humor because they thought they couldn't have any children. So when they adopted three boys and three girls, then they had one of their own. So they had seven children. So growing up in my first house was, you know, with the one bathroom and nine people. It was, you had to learn cooperation. Uh, then we moved into a bigger house then. But it was really just a great, you know, I was, uh, was in a regular school and kids didn't pick on me. I think they thought I was Eskimo or something. It was a novelty. And even though I had crutches, they didn't pick on me. So it was just, a, for me, it was a wonderful time to be in America to start going to regular school. It sounds like to me that if we all grew up in households of, of seven or eight children, that the world would be a nicer, <laughs> nicer place to live, huh? I love this story that you're sharing, and, and you're painting images, I think, in a lot of our minds here. And I don't want to move along too quick to the professional side, but what, what else, as, you're, as, you, as you think about your life and your background that really got you prepared to make such a big impact you know, professionally and, and, and globally that, you're, that you and MAP are doing now, what else sticks out about your upbringing? Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is, I remember when I became a U.S. citizen, and uh, that was 1968, and so I didn't really know, I do now, but I didn't know at the time what that meant. My parents uh, said, uh, Steve, now you can be anything you want in, in the U.S., except for the President of the United States, and now who wants to be the President anyway, right? And, <laughs> and if you do something really bad, 
they could deport you. And I said, uh, I said, what does that mean, deport you? They said, well, they'll send you back to Korea. I said, you mean like a vacation? They said, no, they'll send you back forever. And I said, well, I'm going to be the best darn kid because I don't want to go back to the orphanage. And because of that, I tried, I, I worked really hard anyway because I didn't want to disappoint my parents. But I was really motivated not to make any mistakes because I thought if I did, I would go back to Korea. And I'll tell you the story later on how that really impacted me in a, in a big way. Another story I'd like to share with you is that when I was in high school, I asked my mom and dad, what are the best colleges in the United States? And they said, uh, Ivy League School and Stanford. And I told them, I'm going to go to one of them. And they said, Steve, uh, look around you. We have seven kids. You know, we don't have money to send you to these uh, schools. They're very expensive. And they're very, very hard to get into, which means I'm not that smart because I'm not. And so, but I remember telling them, God will provide. That's what I told them. They're probably thinking, what is this kid talking about? Keep that in mind because I ended up going to Cornell undergraduate and Northwestern for my MBA. And again, just showing you what is possible when you really trust the Lord and have big dreams and really just go for it. Just like, hey, nothing can stop you uh, as long as you have a big dream and have God on your side. I love that. I was reading a story in the Wall Street Journal not too long ago. It was an obituary, as a matter of fact. But it was one of the, found, I think, the founder of Fanuc Robotics. And he was quoted as talking about how important to the growth of the company it was for him and his leadership team to have an indomitable spirit. Uh, and so beyond uh, providence and beyond a good Lord and, and clearly his blessing on your journey, you know, having that spirit that you're going to, whatever comes your way, you're going to overcome it and, and, and break through those barriers. It sounds like, Steve, a lot of kindred spirits and how you look at, look at life. Thank you, and I fully agree with you. And I'll tell you one other story before I talk about my professional life now. And so the other part was, you know, in growing up in high school, do you remember when you had, you know, boyfriend or, you know, or girlfriends? And I had lots of girlfriends because people liked me, but I didn't have a girlfriend. They were all platonic. So again, I remember I just cried out to God. I said, God, and it was usually at night when it's quiet and nobody could hear me crying at night quietly. And I cried out to God. I said, God, uh, after my heart was broken many times, I said, God, uh, would you one day get me a wife? I skipped the girlfriend altogether. I went one for the wife. <laughs> I said, one day, would you get me a wife? Would you make her kind? Would you make her wise? And would you make her gentle? And also, God, you're the God of the universe. Make her beautiful, too. And I have to tell you, when I asked my wife of now almost 39 years to marry me, we never dated. She had many offers, people trying to ask me to marry her. She said no. And so I literally, I, it's a long story, and I'll tell you, it's in the book again. I called her when I was back at uh, Northwestern. I called her on the phone, and I asked her, and I said, uh, uh, Suki, I have a question. She said, yes. I said, uh, uh, I said, yes. I said, would you marry me? She said, yes, I will. I said, I don't think you understood the question. <laughs> would you marry me, please? And she said, yes, I'll marry you. And I had to cover up the phone because, first of all, I didn't know what to say. I thought she would say, oh, let me think about it, pros and cons. But I literally covered up the phone. I said, Yahoo. And, you know, I tell you that story because we never dated. And when you look at it, God was answering all my prayers when I was crying out to him quietly. And so I, I just share that with you because really our hands, our, our lives are in our hands. When you trust the Lord. Uh, we can accomplish many things. And she's been a big part of my life, and I could not do what I do without her today. 
Thank you so much for sharing. I know that there's so much more to that story, and we're just scratching the surface, but it really that sets the table for the rest of the conversation. So, Matilda, I think we're going to be talking about his professional journey now, right? Definitely, Scott. This is, I mean, it's just inspiring. It's, uh, I mean, all inspiring. It's probably the words that I can find right now. I've had the opportunity of reading the book, and I want the world to know about the book because especially in these times that we are in, it is important for people to understand what it means to have hope, you know, to be, to be faithful in your area. So I'm excited. I wouldn't want to move away from this conversation, but we have to get into the professional state. So Steve, thank you for sharing. Um, let's talk about, like you said, professional journey, you know, to your, prior to your current role. What were some of your key positions that helped shape your worldview? Uh, my first job, you know, I really, or toiled, I said, do I go into investment banking or do I go into marketing, uh, entrepreneurship marketing? And I, had to, I was very fortunate uh, to have worked at Johnson & Johnson at the, on the Tylenol business. And so that was my first job uh, getting out of um, Northwestern. And you know, it was the uh, first time where I had the opportunity to really, once you get your foot in the door, you have to prove yourself like everybody else. And so, um, and I was so thankful for J&J to give me the opportunity First of all, I'm very thankful to them because they for, pay for my MBA, which back in the, you know, in the 80s wasn't huge, but you know, it was still a lot of money in terms of uh, back then it was a lot of money. Uh, so thankful for that. And so I'm always grateful for the J&J leadership scholarship that they provided for me. And so once I got in though, I realized that I was different. You can see that I'm, I'm Asian and I don't, right now you, you can't see, but I'll walk with crutches and leg braces. So I didn't have anybody else like me uh, or pretty much any place that looked like me and, and just be what well, kind of, kind of, you know, mentors, that type of thing. So basically I had to really figure out, well, how do I get into the, so the informal social structure? So I tried to, as much as possible, uh, do things with the, the my uh, colleagues and whatnot, but you know, I don't play golf. I don't play tennis. So sometimes that's how you really uh, start putting these bonds together. And so I tried to figure out a way, other ways, uh, how do we get together socially so we can start building relationship beyond uh, work because that you, you need to do that in order to be able to work together and collaborate together. So when, when you understand each other better, uh, you can get a lot more things done and it's much more enjoyable. This, this is like you said, a lot of people, not only in your uh, predicament, it's not a predicament situation you're in, where you came from and what you're doing. What's a key Eureka moment that you've had in this professional journey? Well, I've, I've had a number of Eureka moments. One of the things I never planned on doing was to work for a nonprofit uh, because my, my objective was to work and climb the corporate ladder, and I was doing that. I went from Johnson & Johnson to uh, American Home Products, you know, helped launch Advil, and then went to uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, launched Boost Digestional Drink, and then... Uh, um, Conagra Foods and then Ameritrade. And so I was climbing the corporate ladder and my thought of, of serving was serving on the board. And that, that was my extent. I, by then I was uh, accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I, I would serve uh, on the church related things and camps and that type of thing. But my whole outlook professionally was on just working and climbing the corporate ladder. And so uh, when I served on the, on the board, of Holt International Children's Services, where I came from for nine years. Uh, in 2000, this is the eureka moment that I had. In 2000, the founder's wife 
Bertha Holt passed away. And so, uh, and also by then, if you recall, in 2000, the NASDAQ crashed and stock market crashed. And so I was the vice president, a third VP of Ameritrade, now TD Ameritrade. So they laid me off, which was a blessing in disguise because I had the time to fly, my wife and I fly to uh, Korea to attend the funeral of uh, Bertha Holt. And there I met my childhood friend. His name is Kyung Soo. And he has severe cerebral palsy. Uh, he could barely feed himself. He gets around with an electric wheelchair. But he was smiling at me. So I thought, well, he must be my friend. So I said, Kyung Soo, do you remember me? And he said, yes, Myung Soo, I remember you. I said, oh, what do you remember me about? He said, uh, well, you used to beat me up all the time. <laughs> and remember I told you earlier that when I came home to the orphanage, uh, when I was staying at the orphanage, I would get you know, pick on the kids because they picked on me. So I felt really bad because I'm very strong upper body. So I asked Kyung Soo, would you forgive me for what I did to you growing up? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, Myung Soo, I forgave you a long time ago because Jesus forgave me of my sins. And when he said that, I was speechless. I, I, I was just thinking, you know, this is a man trapped in his own body. He could uh, barely feed himself, but he's happy, he's joyful. And then, so I started thinking, what am I doing with my life? And that was the first eureka moment that I really had where I said, and I said to God, I said, God, what do you want me to do? I will do anything you want me to do. And that's what I told God, I'll do anything. And then I learned that the orphanage I grew up in for five years initially was helped by Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision. And so uh, after many interviews, I, that, I worked for World Vision. That's my first nonprofit job. And that was 20 years ago in 2000. Uh, so that was really a big Eureka moment for me where I went from corporate to nonprofit. Now I've been in the nonprofit for roughly uh, 20 years as well. This is very inspiring and, and, and kind of thought-provoking, right? As I hear Steve walk us through his journey, uh, both personally and professionally, you know, what are we doing, right, to, to, to make an impact and to give back? I mean, I, I ho hopefully our audience is kind of thinking that themselves. But on that note, Going back a little bit, Steve, and before we talk about your book for a minute, you were talking about how hard and how intentionally and how deliberate you were trying to make those relationships in the organization based on some of your limitations and, and, but, and how difficult that was. And I think that's just a key takeaway, I think, for the conversation for all of us because I think for those, for, for those that have limitations or don't have limitations and, that, that, and, and fitting in maybe an afterthought, it's really important for us to put ourselves in, in your shoes and hopefully make, you know, build those bridges and make it easy for folks that, that we're doing exactly what, what you're trying to do. So I really appreciate you sharing because I think that doesn't get enough attention. It can be a, in a blind spot for so many folks. All right. So let's talk about your book. Heard a lot about your book. Uh, I'm ashamed to say I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to pick it up from Enrique. All right. So the crutch of success. So a couple of questions here. First off, what really can you point to specifically that said, hey, I've got to write this book? My wife, Suki, her, her name is Suki, she was telling me, you know, encouraging me for years to, you know, you need to tell your story because you are unique. You're the, probably the only handicapped Korean American who is a CEO of a nonprofit. And I said, oh, there's other people like me and I don't want to be talking about myself. And especially when you, you write a book yet, you really need to share your story, be a little transparent. And I, I really didn't want to do that. And then uh, finally, uh, this happened about a year ago. Finally, I realized it's not about me. It's about God and what he's done accomplished through me. 
And so it was really about how do I encourage other people? You know, really talking about where you start in life, because I had a very humble beginning, doesn't have to define where you end up. And so hopefully it will be, encourage some people that are going through challenges in life. We all have challenges. Sometimes it's physical, other times it's mental, it's, other, it's economical uh, situation, whatever it may be. So hopefully it will give them some hope that uh, God can use any of us, any one of us, if we just let him to uh, the permission. Because we have to, it's a choice. We can be bitter about it and say, oh, you know, I had this happen to me and I, I'm going to be bitter about it. Or say, hey, it happened because it was meant to and you can use it for the good. And so that's why uh, finally ended up writing the book. You took all of that and used it as, as ammunition and as a way to, to give back and help others and inspire others. I love that lesson learned here. All right. So before we're going to bring Adrian in here momentarily because we're going to talk about MAP International. But before we do, I know it's tough. This is going to be a tough question because there's so much in the book I've heard uh, from this team here and, and, and doing a little bit of homework. But if there's one thing that readers of your book will take away and will remember you as the author, what, what would you really want that to be? Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's workmanship creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So for me, that was a, um, there are many life-changing verses, but it's one of them because it doesn't matter if I have crutches, if I have polio. Uh, God had some special work that only I can do. And so it really talks about everybody because we may say, you know, I didn't have a, a chance in life. I didn't, I wasn't born in this country. I came here. I didn't have a chance to do this and go to a good school or whatever it may be. God can still use you because he created each person uh, to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And so I believe that, uh, and I, I truly believe that because without that belief, you can't accomplish things. But when you believe and you say, well, you know, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do the best of my abilities to do it, then God will do the rest. So I think that's one of the, uh, the things I would like to challenge everyone that's listening to the podcast, that everyone has a purpose in life. It doesn't matter who you are. And uh, so I hope that encourages everyone to do and go out and just do it and then see what God can do once you do that. Everyone certainly has a purpose. It takes a little time sometimes to find it and act on it. But I love that message, Steve. Okay, so Adrian, so much good stuff here. I, I almost hate to talk about MAP International as much as I'm, I'm looking forward to learning a lot more about MAP International. But Adrian, let's dive right in, huh? Yeah, thank you, Scott. Steve, so yes, as Scott said, let's, uh, let's all learn more about MAP International. If you could tell us uh, exactly what MAP does and what it's all about. It was interesting. Uh, when I got the interview, recruiter uh, uh, calls me. This is about seven years ago now. And she says, we have the, I have, we have the best role for you as CEO of, of MAP. And I jokingly said, I said, MAP, who uses MAP? Everybody has GPS. And they said, no, it stands for Medical Assistance Program. And and, you know, I knew about Gift and Kind, but I never heard of MAP before. So it's really the best kept secret. And so I told the recruiter, I said, no, uh, my first response was no. And then I came home because I told the, the previous CEO of where I was uh, uh, that I would be there at least uh, uh, three to five years. I was a CEO uh, of Child Fund in Richmond, Virginia. So I wanted to keep my promise. And so then I uh, came home and told Suki about it. She said, you said MAP's a Christian organization? I said, yes. She said, don't you think you should at least pray about it first? I said, you're right. So I prayed about it, and then 
uh, then I realized what the impact that MAP is making and, and God had prepared me for the role. You know, why did I end up getting polio? It is so much better if you could prevent a disease with a vaccine, but once you get it, something, you can, it's treatable. You know, if you get, a, uh, get sick, if you have hypertension, if you get an antibiotic, those are very curable things uh, or certainly manageable uh, uh, chronic diseases, but if you don't have the medicine, you will literally not make it. So uh, I um, ended up getting the role, and then when you look at the impact MAP is making, because MAP gets medicines donated by pharmaceutical companies, and so these products are still good products. They're not expired yet, but they're getting close to expiring. So when, by the time we MAP gets it, it usually have about eight months dating on it. And so then we store it, process it, and we ship it out out of Brunswick, Georgia, to our implementing partners on the ground. And they, our partners on the ground have boots on the ground, people on the, their own staff, and they will then uh, distribute medicines to uh, hospitals and clinics and schools and and other uh, um, facilities. And because MAP gets these medicines donated, a $10 donation will provide $840 worth of medicine. And think about that, you know, where, you know, two cups of well, coffee, right, Starbucks coffee, two cups will provide $840 with life-saving medicine. Talk about a force multiplier, Steve, holy cow. It is, it is a huge, uh, you know, 184, it's a huge impact. I mean, people want return on investment. What what impact am I making? So MAP does medicines. We also do um, get we get involved during disaster response because anytime you have a disaster, natural or man-made, you always need medicines and supplies. And so MAP gets involved there as well. And we've been involved with, every year with hurricane responses, earthquake responses, the explosion in Beirut, and this year particularly, we've been so engaged with providing. Uh, health supplies, face masks, gloves, uh, PP, prote personal protective equipment, uh, personal wipes, medicines to help combat the coronavirus right here in the U.S., but also around the world. One quick follow-up comment here, Adrian, before we dive a little further, that explosion in the port of Beirut, you know, we've all, of course, read about that. We've had some folks on that were involved in some of those uh, continuing relief efforts. But gosh, the amount of tragedy that the people there have just dealt with, it's been, it's been hit after hit after hit. So really appreciate your efforts there, all the things you mentioned, but certainly those folks that, that continue to get um, challenge after challenge. So great story. All right, so Adrian, we're going to dive deeper into roles, right? Yeah, Steve, tell us about the, you know, the roles that you have as, as well as CEO, how you see those roles playing out in, in, in practice within MAP, and uh, where do you spend your time? Physically, I spent, I split my time between Brunswick, Georgia, and Atlanta. And now because of COVID-19, I'm not spending much time in Atlanta. But the Atlanta is important because uh, you have the corporations there and you have much more support uh, in Atlanta uh, versus in Brunswick. Brunswick is our operations and uh, uh, Adrian and Matilda have been there and looking forward to hosting Enrique and you Scott someday too. In Brunswick, we have a 40,000 square foot warehouse. It's a global distribution center. And that's where we do the operations part in terms of physically doing the work. In terms of spending my time, I try to split my time between strategy and then uh, also implementation because, uh, number one, you have to hire good people to let them run the business. Uh, as you know, supply chain management, it's all about people because we're not making anything. We're really moving uh, items from pharma companies to MAP and to, to our partners and doing that, that supply chain management. Uh, and then strategy is very important because 
if you don't manage a nonprofit like a business, you'll you'll go out of business. And so people think nonprofit is oh you can do basically what you want and you know it's okay to lose money because you're a nonprofit. You cannot do that because long term, if you lose continue to lose money, you cannot stay in business because at some point you can't borrow any more money. And so it's really how do you run an organization with excellence? And you know, Mac, we talk about we uh, are serving God and God wants excellent. He doesn't want mediocre work. And because we're a nonprofit does not mean we want uh, the excellent, the best or what we can do any, uh, any organization can do. So that's very important. And so uh, I think strategy also is very important because it kind of gives you the future vision of where you're headed. And, you know, there's a need in the world, uh, WHO, World Health Organization, estimates there are 2 billion people in the world without access to uh, life-saving medicines and supplies. And that's getting worse with COVID-19. So, you know, each year MAP, uh, and this year MAP helped uh, over 20 million people get access to medicines and health supplies. But, but, but normally we do maybe 10 to 13 million people. So, but think about that, 2 billion and 10 million, that's, that's a scratch. So our, our, one of the challenges we put out there as part of our strategic planning process with the board and our senior leadership team, and I share that with uh, Vector, with Enrique and, and Adrian, uh, Matilda was, we want to double impact in the next five years. Uh, not in the next 65 years, uh, the age of MAP, we want to double it in the next five years. And to do that, it's going to take a great deal of uh, strategy in terms of collaborating with other people. How do we get more supplies? How do we get more uh, funding to help move the supply? So when we believe that we can double what we do and it could be uh, maybe 40 million, maybe even 50 million in five years. So that is our goal. And how do we make that vision a reality and the plan, put that plan in place so each year we make progress toward that goal. And so it's, it's, a, it's a weighing of strategy and then implementation and how do you marry the two together. Yeah, no, I just have a quick question uh, on that last comment, Steve, and thank you once again for, for being here. It's always uh, interesting talking to you. So uh, where, where do you think uh, it's a, an incredible uh, goal that you have set for, for yourself and your organization? Where, where, is your, uh, where do you think the main bottlenecks to that kind of expansion are? Is it where, in what part of the supply chain is it, and what, what are you most kind of worried about when it comes to managing those potential bottlenecks more, more closely? You know, one of the biggest constraints is supply because pharmaceutical companies are not producing these medicines to donate. They are literally giving us products that cannot sell. That supply is limited. So then our challenge is, well, how do I increase the supply? And one of the things we're looking at is how do we shorten the supply and chain management? Because if you could take out two weeks here, two weeks, uh, you know, throughout the process from receiving it to processing it to storing it and shipping it, getting it shipped and cleared, if you could take off two months out of that process, that could help literally millions more people because the, the, we're now having this data product move through the system much quicker. And that's why I'm looking forward to working with Vector and figuring out also how do we do our warehousing more efficiently. Uh, as an example, if you look at our warehouse, the 40,000 square warehouse in Brunswick, we have five levels of storage. And, but then when you do a deeper analysis, 30% of volume are the medicines and Rx and OTC products. 70% of the volume are health supplies. Well, the health supplies, you don't have to necessarily store in a temperature controlled uh, warehouse, which is very costly. 
So, you know, Vector figuring out, well, how do we then do the, um, you know, warehousing of medicines in one location, maybe the supplies in another location, and to have it just in time, have it come together. So those are the things we look in the system to make us much more efficient and then also minimize the future need for additional capital to expand our warehouse uh, when, when we double impact in the next five years. Being in Brunswick, the, the, the neat thing you are taking advantage of clearly that we all know here is being really close to one of the fastest growing, most capable port, seaports, really, certainly in the States, if not in the world. And I'm sure that that helps you take some time out of that, you know, out of the overall end-to-end supply chain. And I would imagine too, Steve, when you're talking about supply and ramping up supply, if you could take a month or two out of, you know, end-to-end, uh, your end-to-end supply chain and, and all that processing time and handoffs and transitions that are, that's a part of any supply chain, you would have access, maybe, perhaps, would you have access to more supply and, and, and the companies that support in terms of donating medicines, would there be more options there? I believe once we show that we're having even greater impact, and then we obviously have to then tell the impact stories back to the pharma companies because they want to hear what impact are their product donations having. And so I think we can show that we're much more efficient at it. And because of we're having greater impact, yes, I believe that can then turn to where they say, well, let's give it to MAP instead of some other nonprofit. And perhaps maybe they'll even give us more. And the other part of it is in the receiving side, if we can show to governments in, let's say, West Africa, hey, we can move this very quickly, and you can do this on a monthly basis so that you can take the shorter medicines, accept it because we can do it very quickly, and so you can actually use it before it expires and help millions more people. So I think on the supply side but also on the demand side, I believe we can get more governments to say, yes, we'll take the shorter data medicines so then we can move it quicker to supply chain management. I'm giving uh, Adrian and Matilda and Enrique a heads up because I want to circle back and get one of your favorite parts about what Steve has shared on the interview. But before we do that, Steve, when, when, when you think about your, the global enterprise that you lead and, and you're helping so many people and you want to do so much more and be an even greater force for good, as we're talking to our audience, what's one thing that might surprise our audience members about um, a nonprofit, nonprofit operations, especially as it relates to supply chain or, or distribution of, of your goods or what have you? If you look at the size of MAP and if you look at our total revenues, because 99% of all we, what we do is gift in kind, uh, we, do, we do purchase about a million dollars of product to help round out the order for our customers. So when you look at, wow, MAP's a $600 million organization, if you look at the cash, the cash side, we're really only a $10 million cash organization. So think about that. The $10 million of capital is moving $600 million of life-changing and oftentimes life-saving medicines. And to do that, you have to be very, very good at what you do. Because I've worked in, you know, 20 years, uh, half and half, 20 years in my 18 years in corporate America and now, you know, almost 20 years in, uh, 20 years in nonprofit. Our room for error is much smaller in a nonprofit because... In corporations that you have bigger budgets, if you make a little mistake here, you know, you make it out some other place. With, with the nonprofits, you really don't, you cannot make too many mistakes uh, because at, at some point, you run out of capital to stay in business. And so I think one of the challenges is how do you grow and do it in a way that's responsible? Because we're using donors' dollars. We don't, 
get money from government. And so we get some money from corporations, some foundations, that's it's all private funding. So that's a challenge. How do we then grow? And, 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 that, and we really invite corporations to come with us because I don't think you're going to be able to get a return where you help 20 million people get access to life-changing medicine on $10 million in capital or cash, and then obviously uh, gift and kind things donated. If you're listening to today's podcast, hey, and you're looking to, to use uh, your resources for good, and especially in a historically challenging year, in a time when so many people, as Steve has mentioned, two billion people that don't, don't have access to what they need, hey, reach out. We're, we're going we're gonna to make sure you have MAP International's content information and get involved in, in, in the good fight. All right, so I want to circle back. There's so much here. I love this conversation. Enrique, I want to start with you. I want to circle back through our panel here. What's, what's one thing that Steve has shared today that really hits home for you? Well, uh, you're absolutely right about one thing, Scott, and there's just so many things to unpackage here that it just could be another one-hour conversation just to kind of like try to assimilate all the things that we have listened and learned. And again, it's just been a pleasure to kind of meet and uh, get to know Steve better. And, and again, Steve, thank you very much for doing this. The whole point of us having this uh, series or the, this opportunity is to share inspirational stories like yours because we believe that sharing them pretty much in the same way that you kind of came to the conclusion that you had to write a book. I think that's the best way of really changing the world and, and we believe uh, deeply and passionately about making a positive impact in the world as well. But um, answering your question, Scott, I, I kind of wrote two um, and I'll just go with a uh, with both real quick ones just your fearless attitude I mean you it's just incredibly brave what you've done like every single aspect of what you've done from one point to the other to where you are now it's just took some a lot of courage right uh, and, and I think that's something that uh that I take and, and I and I will actually share with my kids in particular and other people that I know because I think that uh something very important that tells me your story tells me is that you should not always pay too much attention to what other people say or think that you can do or cannot do, including your own parents when they were questioning your, your ambition to go into a business school or one of the top schools in the U.S., and, and here you are. So, th yeah, that's, that's one thing, and uh, I'll probably just let the others mention something before I say something that they might. You can still thunder, Enrique. Thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't want to steal your th your, their thunder. But no, it's just, it's just I, I've always admired people that, that go against the flow, and, and, and Steve, for, for sure, is one of those uh, great leaders that does that. So, Bold. All right. So, Adrian, you are about to say something. Yeah, I, there's, you know, two uh, incidents that come up, which, uh, which I really love that, that Steve's talked about, is, is uh, how, how his sister ran with the candy, and, and that's what started everything for him on his, on his journey. Uh, just, just, just an incredible story that just his his um, proposal marriage proposal to uh, to Suki from a, from a, almost a zero base and, and and how successful that was just a, a, an amazing story but through it all just Steve's uh, resilience uh, his perseverance and his determination to succeed uh, is just awe inspiring and uh, I'm sure his 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 staff and and colleagues and and friends around the world are just see him as a very very dynamic late leader uh, and a very uh, uh, gracious and humble human being as well. And that, that's, that's what comes through so strongly with uh, talking to Steve. Well put, Adrian. Well put. Matilda? Yes, I am always all inside when I am thinking of SC because I come from a place where 
Uh, Steve is talking about some of the two billion that are affected by some of the issues that I think we're all aware of, marginalized communities and all that. So um, for me, uh, first of all, I'm so grateful to Enrique. I probably have to go because Enrique, uh, the, the culture of Enrique really fits into some of the things that Steve is doing. And one thing I took from there is hurt people hurt people if they do not have the help they need. So for Steve to even go to school and come and take out to the least, the marginal, the people that are really suffering now in his position, it makes me understand the mindset of children that do need help, that need to talk into, you know. But then again, Adrian also touched on the part of that God can even use candy to change somebody's life. For me, having been here in the United States for so long, the benevolence of the people of U.S., that they come together to help and fix things, you know, globally. Steve's parents, gosh, I would love to get to meet your mother because the fight they had to put up to even change the laws to come and pick you guys up, it's, I'm glad I have glasses on because I come from a place where I see things like that and kids are changed to chess for three years because of their disabilities or what it is, and they are brilliant kids. So for me, it's quite an inspiring. I have to hold myself from not getting too emotional when I talk. So I am grateful sitting here with Steve and also Enrique constantly helping with books, Steve with medicine, and it's just I'm, I'm grateful to be here. So I take that to give children the hope. So the book that I'm reading, I am going to take it to an orphanage and make sure that I talk to them, understand wherever you are, I do not give hope, and it can be continue your life. Matilda, thanks so much for sharing. I, I... Uh, a lot of what you just shared there resonates certainly with me, and I bet a lot, lots of folks of our audience kind of piggybacking, piggybacking, I think that's right, on what each of y'all have shared. It takes me back to where it all started with Steve's sister sharing the candy. And it's amazing the impact, what a simple act of kindness, what it can do. And, and, and you never know. You never know what folks are struggling with other than more than what you see. And just that simple act of kindness playing such a big part of, of this legacy of service and, and, and tackling the world's ills and problems. So love that. Thanks for each of you all for sharing. So, Steve, I'm hoping that through this interview here today as we publish it and get it out to our global community, that folks will, maybe a couple of folks will step up and want to help support the mission and, and connect with you. How can they connect with you and with MAP International? Well, thank you again, Scott. It's been such a pleasure to be part of the show and again, I want to thank uh, Enrique and Adrian and Matilda for just what, what you do, because you do what you, your work with a passion and for a purpose, too. Not just to move product, but also to help uh, really, how do you make a difference in life? And thank you for uh, being part of uh, with MAP. Uh, you can go to uh, mapmap.org, and you can get involved in a number of different ways. You can volunteer to packing of disaster health kits at your organization. That could be a team building or uh, donations, uh, again, it costs us money to move these containers of medicines. Even with that a service fee, we only cover about a third of our operating costs. Because every year we have to raise $10 million to do this work to help uh, 13 plus million people around the world get access to medicine. So again, map.org. And if I can finish uh, with a couple of stories, if that's okay with you, Scott. Sure, please, we'd love to hear. I'd love to hear a thousand more stories from you, Steve. I love it. Two stories. One is the impact that uh, MAP Medicine's making through our partners. Uh, we work with the Carter Center in Liberia as an example. There are other great examples. 
and the Carter Center, they trained the mental health workers, 230 plus mental health workers in Liberia. And that, as you know, that country has gone through a civil war, many, many other uh, Ebola and other challenges. And, and uh, uh, Matilda, you know what life's like in Ghana and other places as well with trauma. And so, but when they trained the mental health workers, they didn't have any medicine. They didn't have the mental health medicine. So then we, we partner with, with uh, Carter Center and we provide the psychotropic medicine so that people, for the healthcare uh, provider to now provide uh, mental health medicine. So give an example, one of the uh, biggest challenges uh, is epilepsy. And when people go into an epileptic seizure in uh, Liberia and other parts of the world, people literally beat them with a stick thinking that they have to drive out the evil spirit. Wow. Can you imagine getting beat while you go into this epileptic seizure? And so now with the medicine, uh, epilepsy medicine, they, don't, they can live a normal life. And that, that, that's just an example. Again, MAP provides that to the Carter Center and to the country of Liberia for free. And again, that takes funds to do that. And the second story, uh, the last story would be, uh, I uh, was working, uh, this was many years, probably about 15 years ago, so I was in uh, Cambodia and I was with a group of disabled uh, young adults. And because I had crutches and leg braces, they opened up to me and, and, and shared their story. Uh, one young woman had a prosthetic leg, so I asked her what happened, and she said when she was 12 years old, she was outside playing. She steps on a nail, and the nail goes through her foot. Now, that's very painful, but in the United States, you just go to the doctor and get a tetanus shot and some uh, penicillin. You're, you're, you're fine a week later. Well, her family could not afford to send her a doctor, so they treated her foot with some, uh, some uh, herbal medicine. And to make a long story short, where she had to go to the doctor, gangrene had set in, and they had to amputate her leg above the knee. And she said she was so ashamed of being not a whole person, uh, because in that country, if you have any disability, either at birth or due to an accident, uh, they think you or your parent has sinned and God is punishing you. And so she said she would not come out of her hut, not a house, a hut, for a year because she didn't feel like a whole person. And so uh, a, a one-week course of antibiotic would have prevented that from happening. Just think about that. One, you know, for medicines that we could provide for free, antibiotics would prevent her from lifelong um, trauma of not being a whole person because she lost a leg by stepping in a nail. And, you know, I, th I think the many listeners uh, know the story in, in the Bible, in John chapter 9, when the disciples asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Did he sin or parents sin? And, and he just answered, neither he or parents sin, but God allowed to happen so the glory of God could be shown in this person's life. And I, I sort of feel like I'm that person because I sometimes wonder, you know, why was I afflicted with polio? But then I realized it was really, it was a, it's a privilege because now I get to be able to share this work with people by saying, hey, let's advocate for people with disabilities who don't have to get disabled because you can take these medicines. You know, hypertension, cardiovascular, diabetes, all those uh, chronic diseases can be prevented and treated if you, if you get the right medicine. And this is why I'm so excited about MAPS work and what we're doing around the world. I'm going to ask you one additional question here. I think as a, as a leader and, and your perspective, so much of this relates, at least in my mind, back to leadership and effective leadership based on your collective journey 
to date. You know, you've shared so much here and, and, and just to surf just a you know, tip of the iceberg, but if folks are listening to this and maybe they're just starting their career, maybe they haven't managed anyone just yet. Maybe they haven't led any big initiative just yet. Maybe they're on the beginning of their whole professional journey. What would be one really effective leadership best practice that you'd share with them? What comes to mind is, is trust. You have to really trust the people you work with. And then also excellence. You expect the best out of people. Uh, not the worst, but the best. So when you do that, people will usually deliver. You have to have a vision and to lead where you're going, but assuming that's there, most, most places have vision and mission and all of that. But how do you make it happen? Is you got to trust the people that you work with and they expect the best. And when you do that, things really good things happen. Trust is, is such an um, important aspect of the whole equation. And, and you know, expecting the best, you know, th- that's what helps fuel global supply chains, right? That, that trusting in your suppliers, trusting in your colleagues, and trusting, frankly, in your leadership, right? But let's, one final, so the crutch of success, you can find that anywhere, I believe. I think it's, it's all major bookstores and providers. Is that right, Steve? That's right, Amazon. But I would actually appreciate it if you go to the map.org and then you can actually uh, find it there because then uh, you'll get a copy and then all of the donation goes to map. Uh, if you buy it on Amazon, I think we get about $1.72 uh, of that purchase. But whereas if you get it from us directly, uh, then the most, the 100% of it goes to uh, the map's work. Outstanding. I didn't had no idea. That's outstanding. So map.org is a place to go. Of course, to our listeners, we'll include that in the show notes so that you it's, it's one click. That's what we're after here. All right, Enrique, old Greg White couldn't join us here today. Uh, he a lot of times gets our last word. Enrique Alvarez is going to get our last word here on today's conversation. So Enrique? Well, thank you very much for giving me such a <laughs> long heads up on that. But uh, <laughs> we definitely miss Greg White. No, um, my last word is just thank you. I, I think this is this is the the word that I want everyone else to to leave with. It's just thank you. I think Steve, you are uh, you and your organization and your purpose are um, inspirational in so many different ways that I'm pretty sure that people uh, will listen to and, and see this podcast and and learn a couple of things here and there. And as you said, then just trust trust that you. You have to then go out there and do it, right? There's no easy way out. Absolutely. And, and on behalf of the entire team here, Steve, really appreciate what you uh, and, and the MAP International team is doing. We'd love to help, you know, grow, uh, you know, going from 20 million people served to 50 and beyond. Let's get after those 2 billion, right, and working together with you and all the other wonderful folks that are, that are serving those in need. So really appreciate not just – your journey uh, and the mission, but the action, the real action you and the team are taking to help folks that, that really are in need. Steve, appreciate what you do. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. We've been talking with Steve Sterling, President and CEO of MAP International. Be sure to go to map.org. It'll be in the show notes. Learn more, figure out how you can, you can get involved in their outstanding mission and get a copy of the book, uh, which will help uh, further their mission along. Big thanks to our panel of co-hosts. Y'all knocked it out of the park today. Matilda Aron, uh, thanks so much, Matilda, for joining us. Appreciate your perspective. Thank you for having me. That's wonderful. You bet. And, of course, Adrian Pertil. Adrian, great to see you again. Thank you. You too, Scott. And it's been a pleasure as always. Absolutely. And, of course, Enrique Alvarez. Appreciate what you do and the Vector Global Logistics team does. 
as it powers this Logistics with Purpose series to bring stories like this, that folks are doing good, they're changing the world to our, our listenership. Thank you, Scott. All right. So, you know, we, we started today's episode, uh, we produced almost 500 episodes, and for the first time ever, we started with a prayer. Uh, so I'm going to wrap in a little bit more of a unique fashion because what, what I heard here today brings to mind a great phrase that, that I learned uh, from our small group at church, and it's uh, practice PTK every day. So patience, tolerance, and, of course, kindness. Uh, big, seminal aspects of Steve's journey, and, and that's the challenge here today. So practice PTK every day. On that note, on behalf of our entire team here at Supply Chain Now, this is Scott Luton signing off here today. Hey, do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. Be like Steve Sterling's of the world. The world will be a better place. And we'll see you next time here on Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody.